Welcome back to Resilient Entrepreneurs, the podcast where we talk with entrepreneurs and business people from all walks of life and from around the world in the hope that something you hear will leave your business a little richer. LaShawn Smith is our guest today and he is not your typical entrepreneur. He's a passionate advocate for helping individuals turn their dreams into reality and achieve financial independence through entrepreneurship. Wow, isn't that really what we all want? He has a diverse background in film, physical products, software, and impressive leadership roles at companies such as Amazon and Microsoft. So much experience behind him. And as the founder and CEO now of Kager Investments, LaShawn is on a mission to empower new business, new businesses to accelerate their growth. His primary focus also lying in the fascinating world of AI. Can't wait to jump in on that. Welcome, LaShawn. It's fantastic to join you both. I'm here in the surprisingly sunny Seattle, Washington. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, doesn't stay sunny out there very long, does it? Summer it must be not. just about ending for you, I imagine. It is, it is. Yeah, nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And I'd love to just kind of start with a little bit of your backstory. Can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up, what family life was like, and were there entrepreneurs in your family, or were you one of those kids with the lemonade stand? Give us a little bit of that. Well, I have an interesting academic background growing up. Uh, I started in public school. My mom was a teacher, eventually a librarian. And so we got to go to the private school where she taught at tuition we could never afford. And so we got a great education there. But then we re uh, relocated and I was homeschooled for a while. And eventually I finished back in, in a public school. And so it was a really interesting kind of social development process, moving through different kind of socioeconomic classes. We never had much, but getting exposed to things. And so I think that was quite impactful on me. Uh, as far as uh, kind of what I did on the outside and the seeds of entrepreneurship, uh, I started uh, very, very young. I think I was probably eight or nine. I was selling candy on the playground. And uh, one of the quick lessons I learned there is I was convinced I knew what everybody wanted because I was selling them what I wanted. And that was one of my first big lessons in business. You got to figure out what the customer wants, not what you think they want. And, you know, over the course, I actually stuck to that for quite a while, all the way to junior high and um, and high school. And I saved up enough to upgrade and buy a new computer. Maybe some of the younger listeners won't know what this is, but we had, I bought a, a camcorder, which was like a video recorder uh, when you didn't have it on your phone. And so it was kind of a big deal because I was like, I'm getting all the gear I need. I thought I was going to like document all these things and I was going to write software. and But I had all sorts of odds and end jobs from grocery stores to a burger shop. I dug ditches one time. I laid tile on a roof. And two things I learned out of that is like, I'm not built for physical labor. So I need to stay in school and uh, upskill. And then number two is along the way, I just kept meeting new people. Uh, my dad was a musician and uh, at some point he was also in the military. So we moved around a lot. I've now lived in 11 cities. And when you show up to a new place, you're posed with this question, am I going to be outgoing, go meet new people, or am I going to like kind of hole in a corner and pretend I don't have anyone I can talk to? And I really embraced this idea early on of meeting strangers. And so this mix of learning how to sell early on, you know, getting exposed to technology, and then also kind of figuring out what I didn't like. 
uh, I think I was just really fortunate to set myself up on the right path. And then I just got blatantly lucky that I was drawn to computers and I just showed up at the party right as things were taking off. Wow. That's a great starting point. And with so much experience and so much moving around, there must have been a lot um, in the development of your personality, which now carries through to the great work that you do with entrepreneurs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, you've worked with, like we mentioned, Microsoft and Amazon. Leaving that couldn't have been easy to go out on your own. So tell us a bit about that, that leap into starting your own firm. Yeah, you know, starting my own business is something I've done multiple times. And I think part of the entrepreneur journey, you have to ask yourself, like, do I want to take all of these licks? Because sometimes it's not fun. And, and in the early days, I did not know what I was doing. And just quickly tying back to how I grew up, I was exposed to a guy who uh, was at our church. And one day he said he was going back to his office to do something. And I didn't know what this meant, right? Um, but he was like one of my parents' friends. And I said, can I go? It was like, a, it's so so serendipitous. And he takes me to his office and there are all these computers. Now I had my little tiny cheap computer at the house, but these were, I guess, the best computer at the time. And there were just rows of them. And like, I was just mind blown. And I said, well, what is this place? And at the time they called it data processing. And so they were doing all of these things uh, with what today would look like very crude computers, but it exposed me to the opportunity that actually I could actually write software for a living. And so that was a huge unlock. And so I, I continued to try to find opportunities to come back to that passion. As I said, though, I just got lucky. Uh, I didn't know that was actually going to be the super growth industry. And so I started my career in the U.S. Navy. I worked at a handful of software startups and I worked my way up to the C-suite And then I moved into what they call big tech, kind of the big five or six technology companies. And I spent uh, about 15 years as an exec at Amazon and Microsoft. And through all that process, similar to me moving around a lot when I was young, one of the things I kept learning was while we're all different, and we share a lot of values, like the people friction is where a lot of things small, you know, fall down. And so whether I'm in a highly bureaucratic structured process like the military, or I'm in a massive multinational corporation, or I'm at a startup, what I kept seeing were these patterns. And the pattern was there were all sorts of inefficiencies that would surface because there wasn't clarity of vision, there weren't alignment of values, people didn't understand why person A showed up. Someone would say, this person's lazy, they don't want to work hard enough. The other person says, this person doesn't understand quality of life and work-life balance, and there would just be all these frictions. And so one of the things and skills I really tried to hone was this idea of bringing disparate groups of people together on some common mission. And it was probably about a year into my last corporate stint. I looked around and I tell the folks that I coach and mentor this quite often, and they're all relatively young in their career. And these are folks who have found me in different ways. I don't have a coaching business per se, but I always tell them that you need to live to your own values. And when you find that customer, that pain point that you're really energized about, you really need to chase that. And I had to be honest with myself. I had fallen into this trap where I was being rewarded with this fantastic job, so to speak, but the golden handcuffs were there. And I have this strong memory. I was in a 
uh, a two-day meeting with a big company that they had uh, had me sit with and kind of talk through their strategy. And I won't mention the, the company, but I was sitting with the CTO and I just had this movement over me. It's like, I don't care about this customer. And it's not so much like they were bad actors or anything. It's like, this is just some big monster company that I don't care about. And I had found like, that's what I had become at the company. They would move me around, pass me around. They're like, LaShawn will get the deal done. LaShawn will help connect all these pieces. But I was like, but I don't care about the customer. And so when I left corporate, I really wanted to go figure out who was the customer that I was going to lean into and where I got most energized. Uh, and I don't like to use the word small business. Uh, I like to use the word small teams. And what I mean by that is when teams get large, they get sometimes a bit discombobulated. That's where the politics comes in. Uh, there's a term that we used at Amazon called a two pizza team. And for folks who haven't heard of this concept, uh, this was a, a phrase that Jeff Bezos coined that said, no team should be big enough that it takes more than two pizzas to feed them. And the goal is to figure out how you let all of those small teams interrupt with each other. And when you do that properly, you can scale that much better than a traditional hierarchical kind of org design. And I started thinking about the whole journey of my career. And a lot of it was making things more efficient, helping people work together more smartly and doing a lot of this through software tools. And so that was the impetus that's just like, well, this is very obvious. I've kind of found the group that I care about and I have a clear you know, kind of pain point that I get energized about and that folks are willing to pay to get sorted. And so that's where I focus on now is finding software businesses I can invest in that are helping small teams be successful. And some of those small teams are in small businesses and then others are in large companies, but uh, we're really focused on helping the small team win. Yeah, I like that. And as a small team ourselves, we definitely resonate, <laughs> definitely resonate with that and building in the efficiencies and software to help a small team be really successful and create a really successful lifestyle business is, is incredible. So I love the mission that you're on and what you're doing. But I just want to go back for a second when you mentioned golden handcuffs. It's a term I've heard a lot recently going down different paths and different podcasts and listening to, and it's spoken out a lot. And I, I understand exactly that is a big limiting factor for people becoming an entrepreneur. They're in a job where they're making decent money, probably are investing a little, they've got some savings, they can travel, they can live a good life. Having that, how do you become an entrepreneur when that other side is so risky? It's easier to just keep the handcuffs on. Sure, sure. Well, yeah. I think structurally, just mathematically, the first thing is how do you get in shape, right? The plan is not difficult to draft. You got to eat properly and you have to have the work, the right workout plan. And I would say similarly, you know, your path to entrepreneurship, the plan is not hard. What's challenging is eating junk food in the middle of the night. And, you know, likewise, in that metaphor, you may not be, you know, as they say, growing the gap, and that's where you're spending less than you than you make, and you're experiencing lifestyle inflation, or you're making life commitments, which may be worth the trade off, but you're, you're committing to things that are really hard to undo. And many folks understand the big commitment, like, you know, Raising a family is a big commitment. You should go figure out your right financial plan. But even things that don't seem like big commitments, uh, one of the things I see consistently are pets. And so I don't tell anyone don't have a pet, but it's surprising how many people I talk to who realize later that 
they want to prioritize travel, whether it's professionally or just for fun, and how they manage their pets, not just where to put the pet, that's a tactical thing, but you know, just the emotional attachment and being away and like all these things, they compound on each other. And so I think the first step is just making sure you're you're setting yourself up for the option to even move into that path without success. Because I've seen entrepreneurs take on all of those compounding responsibilities, then jump into entrepreneurship, and then they're like super stressed out, right? And that's not a healthy place to be because you may not make confident decisions. But back to your point, I think if you can directionally get those things in order, for me, I consistently have asked myself, what do I get out of the next two years, the next four years, the next six years? My brain just thinks in in those terms. And over the years, I've constructed a six-sentence or a six word, three sentence uh, charter. And it's very straightforward. It is make things stay free and know thyself. And, And the reason those are important for me is when I'm not making things, I know there's an energy that's not right. And over time, I found that when I'm managing teams over a certain size, I'm too far away from the making and I don't have great energy. And so every time I've, I've gotten around 120 to 150 uh, people in an organization I was managing, it always broke down. And I was like, almost like self-sabotaging. And what I found when I was like really honest with myself is, I don't want to just manage the humans. And for some people, that is the destination. And for me, because of my background, you know, I love, I, I still spend probably six to eight hours a week now uh, writing software. And it's not to sell to anybody. It's just, I want to make sound investment decisions, underline the, the fundamentals of the things I'm investing in. And so that's just my style. And so every time I got too far away from that, things were bad. So that's making things. On the know thyself, many times we get opportunities that we're capable of, but you don't get good energy. And uh, what's the Japanese concept by Ikigai, where you like you want the Venn diagrams of like, what are you good at? What gets you positive energy? What is the market value? And so anytime I'm getting those circles out of whack, then that's bad. And then finally, I love to have agency. And one of the things that I got so frustrated with as I progressed in my career in corporate was Every minute of my time was booked up to talk to someone and I didn't have enough time to breathe. And I would go through great lengths. I had a reputation. It's like, LaShawn is going to fake book his Thursdays and Fridays and he's not really booked. Now my EA would do all sorts of gymnastics to like keep it safe because I wanted to read a book. I wanted to go think. You want to have space to, to dream and those types of things. And it was it was constantly pressure to, I ended up in kind of these 15 minute increments where my day was measured and like blocked in these 15 minute blocks. And it was just like, I was not being true to my constitution. And so the inflection point for me was summarizing, number one, making sure I had the math and the the core mechanics in place so I could even make the decision to move into entrepreneurship without being stressed out. And then number two, being honest with myself on What's my constitution? And then what's the gap for my current situation and what I believe that constitution is? And when I looked at how wide the gap had grown, I was like, I got to go. And I'm a believer that you you shouldn't just run from a bad job. It's like entrepreneurship isn't going to save the day. And so that's back time to the earlier point where I really believe you have to choose your customer first 
figure out how you have a real relationship. And then you can, you know, there's all sorts of ways to add value rather than if you found me when I was 22, I would be off building something. And then when I finished, I would say like, who wants to buy this, right? Uh, Which is a really silly way to start a new business and very risky. Wow. So many golden lessons in that. And I really enjoy hearing about the charter. And I I would encourage our listeners to consider doing that for themselves. I'm certainly going to take that away from this conversation and really think about what are my six six words? It sounds like a great uh, formula. Keep it short. (laughs) Those three things. And I mean, certainly know thyself. I it's for the recipe for success, I would suggest that know thyself would be in there for most people. Because if you don't know what you want, you don't know where you want to go, you don't know what makes you happy, all those things that you talked about, then you don't really have a starting point yet. So wow, thank you for that wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to say I like how important values are to you, clearly. And I did yes. note on your on your website, um, it's cagr.com. Am I correct? So I make sure I get that That's right. That's correct. That you go on there. And one of the things I saw was a whole values page. You have a page that describe your values for the business. And we are marketing people. So we work with people to build websites. And that is something we always recommend. And people are always a little surprised. Like, oh, like, why? I got to put my services. I got about us page. You know, that's important. We we really recommend that values be really important too. In fact, when Vicky and I built our website for two for one, the first page we built was our values page. It I was the it. most important thing to us. hundred percent. Yeah. I actually wrote a book called values-based business design, and it's really focused on junior product managers. At the time I was coaching and mentoring a number of product managers. And I was like, all right, I'm having the same conversation over and over. So I should probably go write this down. But the reason has that label, again, it's values, values-based values uh, business design. The core premise, and it's one of those books, I don't need to sell books. I will tell you the whole thing right now in 30 seconds. So you don't have to read the book. I believe as we continue to move forward, if you do not have a business rooted in values that, and here's the, the punchline, that you're willing to go out of business to protect, you are going to have a really hard time acquiring and retaining customers. Because increasingly, you know, whether someone may say it's a purpose-driven business or it's just a great kind of branded business, most people aren't going to say Nike is a purpose-driven business, but the promise is very clear. The values are very clear. They are largely trying to make everyone, the everyday person, feel like an athlete. Um, and and I'm, I'm paraphrasing their words, but it's very clear the journey and the mission that they're on and trust is is easy to lose, but I believe that if you don't truly lean and start there, you can easily get distracted with so many things. And I, working in early stage software products in small companies, big companies, I, I naturally found myself in meetings with brand consultants and folks who were kind of developing identities. And I was like, oh goodness, this is so critical to the rest of the decision-making. If you don't figure out what you stand for, and I'm not just saying like culture posters that you put in the hallway at your office, but like what you deeply stand for, everything else is harder. The website is harder. The product is harder. Your go-to-market is harder. Your comfort, like everything is just harder. And so it's like, why not invest the appropriate time and money up front? So it's almost like the teenage years, you got to figure out who you are, your identity, and everything else, I just think, uh, becomes a much easier decision process once you have that articulated. Yeah, you said it. I love the analogy. Like being in your teenage years is something that you just have to figure out. And it's not a head exercise either. It really needs to come from the collaborative 
and from the heart and true values, what people, and if people's values who are working in a team don't align with the values of the company, then that's a clear sign that perhaps they're in the wrong seat too. So yeah, very, very fascinating. I wanted to ask you how we bring values, which is such a human element, to technology. You're a software designer. I'm curious how your mind works and bringing that and AI together for the betterment. Sure. Well, just putting an underscore, I'm, I'm big on etymology and how we use our words, uh, because again, it can confuse. Uh, sometimes we use simple words and we think everyone has the same definition and that's not uh, good either. But the reason I love that word values in the context of business is because the word value singular is used so often. And it's really about value creation or the value proposition or all these types of things. And you just put that S in there and it's like, no, we're talking about a totally different thing now. And, and sometimes I've had to like pause the room and say, hey, no, we're switching over into this money in the bank account conversation and like we will get there, but that's not where we need to start. And so when I first started building products, again, I was just fascinated that you could create leverage out of hands on a keyboard. Like that was just so fascinating to me. Naval Ravikant has this concept of four types of leverage in business. There is capital, there's labor, there's media, and there's code. And again, I just stumbled into fourth pillar. And you can see that the top 10 most valuable companies in the world, seven or eight of them are technology companies. And largely it's because you can create so much leverage with software. And the danger of that is you can lose the humanity. You can end up being very kind of unempathetic. And so over the years, I've tried to continue to continue to refine my approach to like, all right, how do we use this leverage in a good way? And, you know, I'm a capitalist. I don't work at a nonprofit or an NGO. Uh, but at the same time, I do believe there is a responsibility that we have. And it can be good business to kind of think of the human. And so when I started talking about, you know, my focus on small teams, it's a very different approach than saying, hey, I'm going to go to a 30,000 person company and help them figure out how they lay all their people off. I'm not energized by, by that narrative. And I actually don't think that's a, a sustainable business model. I think what's more interesting is to say, all right, here's a group of 12 people. And they have this untapped potential, but right now they can't grow or they're constrained by capital. But if they had this small $100 or $1,000 solution, it would be the equivalent of them like raising $500,000 in, in investment funds. And that's where it becomes really powerful because I really see the world through the lens of abundance. And it's not like, oh my goodness, if everyone's business is successful, then somebody else has to really be you know, doing poorly. And for me, I look at technology as kind of like this infinite leverage machine. And we got problems all around, right? Whether it's how we want to be entertained, how we want to have healthier lives. Uh, I've kind of landed on life is mostly about moments, relationships, and kind of stringing together a bunch of happy days. And so when you look at a lot of what people do at work today, the work's not even that interesting. It's not going to be in that bucket. I remember a quick anecdote. I was cleaning out my office at a, at a job I was leaving years ago, and I found this paper in, in a PowerPoint that was attached to it. It was like a printout. This is back then when we would like hand out the deck. And I just kind of laughed because I remember I was working so hard. I was doing ridiculous hours trying to do this project. And I looked at it. It's like, this thing didn't matter. The project got canceled. The product doesn't exist anymore. Like none of it, right? And so from a journey standpoint, 
it's is very formative and I got a lot out of it. But I was giving this value to this experience that was kind of misplaced. And so when I, you know, back to your core question, when I look at the problems today, I'm all about simplifying and not getting too complex. There's a great quote uh, that I learned in business school from Peter Drucker. He's the father of management consulting. And he said, purpose of, of a business is to create and keep a customer. It's like very, very simple right? The purpose of a business is to create and keep a customer. And it just never left me because there's so many other things that we can start piling on. We want to chase status. We want to go talk at some conference, all these things. That's not the game, right? And the further you get away from that core focus of serving the customer, I just think the more trouble we get in. And and so when I look at how software uh, and specifically AI, I'll give you a a tangible second uh, example here in a moment, but I just look at it three buckets. There is sales, there's delivery, there's support. And I don't let my brain make it more complicated than that. Now, yes, there are many, many things in each one. In sales, you know, there's customer development and all that process. There's marketing. Uh, that might be an ad strategy. That might be brand awareness. That might be audience building, organic channels. There's direct sales. Like there, So yes, there's all these things inside. But when you give yourself permission to simplify, then you can start to see the world with clarity. And so I look at most, when I say these small teams, one of the questions I ask when I join some of the calls is like, all right, do you have one product, one process, one sales channel? And if I hear no on any of those questions, it's like time out. <laughs> and once you force that clarity, there are all sorts of ways to leverage technology to streamline things. And so, for instance, there's a product I recently invested in and the business is very, very simple. It uh, creates these internal dashboards and tools from a 30-minute conversation. So someone gets on a phone call and they talk to someone about some type of you know, data analysis or, or, or other type of problem that they, they have. And from a 30-minute uh, conversation and a few CSV or Excel files, they create this whole project. Now, years ago, this would have been a $30,000, $50,000 engagement, or you'd have to hire a business intelligence analyst or, or something. And they figured out how to, to build this in a very, very turnkey process. And so it's humans and software together. And I don't know that team ever gets large. Like This is not a company that's going to make LaShawn rich. It's just such an obvious lever to unlock. And I just look at all the inefficiency everywhere there's an email, everywhere there's a justification meeting, everywhere there's like any of these conversations where, again, you're not focused on making or selling directly to the customer. You're like not not really talking to the customer. I'm like, that's something that we can probably get out of the business and focus back on kind of why we're here in the first place. Yeah. I hear a lot of like the simplification of things. Yeah. Like being the key. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you one more piece. When I was in graduate school, I took a class and, you know, sometimes we take these class classes we're told to take. And I was like, why do I have to take this class? This is so silly. And two of them that I did not want to take that are probably the most important one was organizational uh, behavior and design. Um, but the other was around supply chain and logistics and kind of how you move things around. But 
the core section of the course was around process engineering. And it really focused on like, ignore all the technology. Let's go back to the 50s and the 60s. And there's just like a bottling company just like filling up bottles of Coca-Cola. And what they would do back then is they had these folks who were process engineers and they would literally like sit with a clipboard and an analog stopwatch and they would like time all the different steps. And then they would go back to their office, they would type up a bunch of things and they would say, we believe here's where you can improve your throughput or your capacity or what have you, right? And once the 80s and the 90s kicked in and everyone had a computer, a lot of that practice just got moved away because you know many folks weren't doing capital intensive manufacturing or other types of things. So we all forgot that. And one of the things that I love about AI is it's forcing every business owner or manager, doesn't matter if you're in a small or large company, to say, well, if I want to use this, the AI needs you to articulate your process. And so these old techniques from the 50s and the 60s are now being brought back. And I'm seeing folks 20s and 30s, and they're just like, oh, this is really innovative. I'm like, this is the old stuff. This is the tried and true process. And really what it's about is getting the stakeholders together to document your workflows and your processes. And you can think about all your actors, right? These are maybe different people in the team, vendors that you work with. And that documentation process, it's almost like therapy for a business team because there might be a pain point that folks have been enduring for months or years and no one's, you know, took a break, popped up and said, can we just write this whole thing down? And the reason coming back to why I'm so focused on simplification is the more you allow these branches in your process to kick off, the more you create these little pockets of inefficiency. And then the human layer layer can hide that because a a manager or a team, sometimes people don't want to give up headcount. And they're like, well, if you solve this problem, where do these three people go? And that becomes a mindset thing that you need to develop with your leaders. But I'm just so focused on the simplicity because once you force that, you almost find that it's not the technology that was the real broken piece. It was a lot of the organizational design and the the people interaction, but you need some type of mechanism to go and force that therapy. Yeah. And clarifying the target, which is your simplicity, is knowing exactly what you're in it for. The Peter Drucker quote, all of this is very much reaffirming that we need to know what we're doing like, and why right, we're right. in the game. And then all right. the other stuff can be a distraction or it can lead towards yeah. the I mean, tell me point. when you all are, are engaging on, you know, a campaign or, or, or something like that, do you ever find this tension where someone or some folks are like ready to hop on your methodology and go and then others are just like, can you just give me the deliverable? Like, how do you balance that tension when folks are trying to rush the process? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, that happens a lot. Or they'll want to explain why we're doing something. And I'm the one that gets frustrated and says, just trust me. I've been doing this all this time. I have a success track record. Let's just do it the way it needs to be. But the analogy would be somebody wanting to understand why we're documenting everything. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Very totally. interesting. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's always a bit of fear with all of this. There's the fear um, for the people who might lose a job because of AI or the technology comes in and takes away this manual thing that they've always done. And what, what are they going to do then? Are they going to have to reskill? Are they just going to be fired? Are they past the age of finding a new job? And, and so there's a lot of hesitation on people to embrace the new, the new technology, the new system, the efficiencies, because 
the inefficiencies have been working just fine all this time. And I've still got my job right. and everything's still fine. And there's all the fear of AI is going to take over the world and people are going to be out of jobs. I mean, we've heard that so much over the last few months and hasn't yet, but yeah, <laughs> yet. I think two sides of this AI coin. Number one, I'm not of the belief that even if we got to what is called artificial general intelligence, uh, so AGI, this is like the big, you know, oh my goodness, we're going to work for the computers. This is back to the earlier part of our conversation where for thousands of years, uh, and, and it's really funny because, you know, we've been working as farmers or, or different types of agriculture, you know, there's military forces, like we've had some of the same types of focus areas, but the idea of a career where you go work for someone else, that's only two or 300 years old. We have to remind ourselves this idea, like I go work at this place is largely a function that emerged from the industrial revolution. And through that lens, a lot of business success was about information asymmetry. So I know something you don't know. And from capacity. And that capacity could create scarcity, right? And so how many bottles of a Coca-Cola, how many sneakers can I make? Whatever the thing was, and then supply and demand would kick in and, and all of these kind of economic principles that we know. What I find interesting and maybe not surprising is that we automatically think about the worst in humans and we're like, oh, the AI is going to be the same way, <laughs> right? Because we come from this place of scarcity, we're like, oh, that the AI is going to treat us bad. And I'm just of belief that the AI would never think if we ever got to some, you know, now we're in sci-fi land, but if we ever got to that point, the AI is not thinking in scarcity. It's thinking there's enough for everyone. And so I'm just generally an optimist that you definitely have to work out what's called downside asymmetry from a human getting this. If you say, hey, it's been very challenging for a human to make a bomb. And now some new technology lets one bad actor go and create something that can damage. Like, yes, we have to go, I think, find the right you know, conversations and processes to handle that. But I'm not afraid of the AI. I'm very optimistic and I believe it'll see things up uh, through, through that lens. But on the flip side, you know, if I'm being dialectic, I'm kind of challenging my viewpoint. One of the things that I think people in technology miss was something you said um, earlier, Laura, on the reskilling part. If you work in the software industry and many parts of technology more broadly, it doesn't matter what you learned in college or grad school. You're, you're, you're almost constantly relearning your craft every 24, 36, 48 months. And for the rest of your life, right? This is part of the reason that sometimes there's some ageism that creeps into technology because some folks just get to a point and they're like, I'm tired of rebooting my career every two years because this, this old thing that I learned went out of business. And so what you see um, as a common pattern, not with everyone, but you'll see a common pattern with folks in the software industry that the best folks become meta learners. They become really good at learning quickly. And I think many of those individuals, they're lacking the empathy to recognize many other industries don't work that way. Uh, there are many folks who've been doing the same thing for 15 years. And this idea is like, oh crap, I gotta go learn something new. That muscle is not exercise. That's not the way they've been moving. That anxiety is real. And so I think there's part of that conversation that doesn't get worked in that many of the people building these products, they just assume everybody's okay with rebooting their career every 24 months. And that's just not true. Yeah, I really like the way you said that. I think that makes so much sense and really helps to clarify why there is the uneasiness 
with so many people while there are others who are like excited about it. I think too, because I've always been in design and graphic design is constantly relearning, learning new skills. There's, you know, everything changes every couple of months. There's a new update for the software. So you just got to go learn the new bit. So it's part of ingrained in me. So for me, it's like, woohoo, AI, exciting. What is it going to bring? What is going to help me to get better at? Um, Versus I know other people who, like you said, I've been doing the same sort of job for the same numbers of years and like, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> right. you know? So it makes a lot of sense. Thank you for clarifying it in such a good way. Yeah. And Sean, talking about being a lifelong learner, we see a lot of books behind you. So I have to ask you, favorite book at the moment or favorite book of all time? Most impactful book? Whichever you prefer to answer. Well, so one of the things that uh, I love to collect is uh, movie production and art books. And so probably a fifth or even a quarter of my books are picture books. And so uh, they're they're very easy on the read. And the reason I collect those is I love to kind of see whether it's storyboards or you know, all sorts of art books. And for folks who are not familiar with this, usually when a big blockbuster movie comes out, there are so many crafts that have to come together. There are illustrators, there's music composers, there's 3D artists, there's wardrobe and production designers, there's all of these crafts. And uh, these books aren't very profitable to, to produce, but more as a respect to all of these crafts that come together, they go compile some of the pieces. And so fans get a little behind the scenes, kind of look at all the pieces that led up to making you know your favorite Pixar movie or what have you. And then folks who got part of that, they get this kind of uh, momentum that they can keep. And the reason I really am drawn to those types of books is it's a reminder of how when you bring a set of disparate functions and domains and expertise, like you can really make some magic in that case, telling an emot- emotive story that connects with all sorts of demographics, right? And, and so... That's something I just like to remind myself, like the power in this world when we come together is really transformative. Um, back to your actual question. One of my favorite books, and and it's a very simple book to read. And when I read some of my favorite books, I'm like, yeah, this could have just been a blog post, but I don't mind giving them the $20. There's a book called The Psychology of Money. And the reason I like this book is personal finances tied to so many of the anxiety points that people create in their life. And mostly, you know, as I said earlier, we're in a relationship with ourselves. We're in a relationship with the the people close to us. Uh, We have our health to take care of and we need some money, right, to, to move around the world. And so they say money won't solve all your problems, but it will solve your money problems. And what I love about this book is it's a great reminder through anecdotes and stories and some research that going broke or making money is largely a behavioral exercise. It's not how much you know. It's it's really about how you behave. And so people who are highly educated, I, I know folks that I went to school with who are investment bankers, hedge fund managers, some of these folks are still broke. Right. They're, they either have like gone to the extreme of lifestyle inflation. Right. And so it's like, oh, my goodness, they have like two crazy houses and they have a yacht and they're not really liquid. And so as a result, they have this crazy anxiety. But they also sometimes have this arrogance. And so they make poor decisions. They're like, of course, I know how to make this trade. Of course, I, I can see this arbitrage opportunity. And so sometimes I think folks feel like once I get past a certain point, I'll make great decisions about money. 
And it is just simply not true. And so what I like about that particular book is when you talk to people today about how they learn, you know, paid coaches are a popular topic. And I don't really knock paid coaches, like whatever you can do to accelerate your kind of ramping up on things, like you should go do that. But many paid coaches are just sharing what they learned in a book. And some of the best books and some of the ones behind me that I like the most are books that are, they're really old, right? Like I have a book I just bought off of uh, eBay from the 30s um, and it's on economics. And I love finding like, I usually can't you know justify the first edition because it's like really for collectors and I'm, I'm going to actually read the book. So I'll find like a second or third edition, but like these books are really old and those are books that people wrote when they had like 20 years of experience. And so you're... 20, 30, $40 and eight hours of your time is going to take on 20 years of someone's experience. And so when I look at the biggest levers of where people kind of make missteps or they make big confidence or they make big decisions with low confidence data sets, I'm like, those are the books people should read. And so on the nonfiction side, um, I really like that book on money because that's one of the levers that like eight hours of your time could change your life. Yeah. I like what you said, and it's such a good point to remember is it's somebody's 20 years of mastering whatever they've been focused on for all that time, written for you to learn the most important things from them. We spend four years, maybe more, six years in university trying to get all the knowledge and it's there for you in a book. More people need to read. We have a book club. And um, I think that one needs to be on our list for the book club, Vicky. We're going to have to add to Psychology Money. It's, it's definitely one that's been on my list for a long time. Um, our next one up is Atomic Habits, which is another. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's a great one. Who's the author of Atomic Habits? I'm forgetting his name. But uh, what I love about what he's done is uh, like on Twitter and other places where he shows up, he really he gets to the essence of the daily activity to reinforce the point and atomic habits you know i think that that makes sense but what i love about the thread i see is most of this stuff is mindset right the, the actual hard skill is usually fairly easy for most folks to to take on and uh, it's like but are you really going to change your behavior and i heard this great definition of learning someone says you don't learn something or you have not learned something until you change your behavior. So like filling up your head with knowledge so you can go on jeopardy, like, okay, maybe fine. But like you really haven't learned something until you start acting differently. And so not just taking these books, but figuring out what's the actionable piece that I can go put into practice tomorrow and start compounding that. And that's really you know, why I called my company Kager Investments. In finance, you know, it's kind of like... Uh, it had a derogatory term for, for many years because they would say the Wall Street bros always throw around this term Kager because they would use it in private equity and investment banks to talk about, um, we're going to squeeze out all the growth. We're going to lay off all the people. We're going to get paid. And um, But mathematically what it means, it's the geometric progression of, of growth year over year. Right. And so if you see a 10 percent Kager or 20 percent Kager, um, that's showing you how much that asset is growing or that market or industry is growing year over year. And Einstein has this you know, famous quote that compound interest is one of Ben's uh, best and inven greatest inventions. Right. Because we really don't understand how to conceptualize hockey stick growth. Uh, like our minds just aren't built to understand an exponential curve. And 
while you can apply Kager to math and finance, the reason it resonated with me is that if you look at yourself, and I like to use time as a key currency, and you look at what we have 761 hours in a month, having minutes in our life, whatever, however you want to slice it, if you look at that as your bank account, you're going to figure out how am I going to spend that? If you spend that in a way, you know, wisely, in a way that compounds, it's like you will create an exponential curve for growth. And so many times I see folks trying to like make these crazy leaps. It's like, no, just do something consistently every day. And that's likely going to get you there more consistently than the person who is like ignoring it for six months. And then they're like, I'm going to take off a week of work and I'm really going to go get after this thing. Like, no, be consistent. That's, uh, I think that's a really core part of, of success. And I think it ties, you know, actually to my understanding of, of your, your, uh, your podcast name. Um, when I think about resilience, a lot of it has to do with, with consistency. And if you don't, if you don't have that, I think you end up in a, in a place where you're frustrated with the starts and stops, but at the same time, like you could see like, well, if I just did this thing every day for six months, I'd be way over here. And for whatever reason, you know, that's a, that's a muscle that we have to exercise to get there. Yeah. I was just about to ask you what your definition of resilience is. Would you say it's consistency? I, I would, I would maybe put a finer point, you know, as I said, you know, my mom's a librarian and so, you know, books and learning is, is, has been around me for, for quite a long time. And she has like two words that have been her favorite words for decades. One is journey and the other is resilience. And so I really love uh, the name of your podcast. And for me, if you said, hey, LaShawn, what's your definition of resiliency? I would say consistently getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. And it's just so easy. You know, we talked about the golden handcuffs. We talked about finding the justification to, you know, maybe take on a new scary challenge. A lot of it is just, you don't want to exercise. And, you know, there's different types of exercise. I'm using the the fitness metaphor here, but if you're not making your skill set uncomfortable, you're not making your network or how, you know, I, I like to say you got to go meet strangers. If you're not exercising all of these things, yes, you're going to be out of shape. Uh, but the first day, you just got to put on your shoes and at least run a few blocks. And you're like, okay, I started my streak, right? You don't have to be a world champion. And so for me, a lot of resilience is finding the courage and the grit and the drive uh, to consistently, you know, be uncomfortable, be okay being uncomfortable because eventually, that exercise gets comfortable, but then this new thing shows up and that, that back to the compounding. And then you look up, you're like, oh my goodness, I can't, I can't imagine. I can't believe I used to be afraid of this, like really small activity. Right. Um, when I first used to, uh, I had a great manager years ago and he said, uh, LaShawn, we're going to make you famous. And I didn't know what he meant. And, and the short version was, uh, they're going to put me on a panel circuit. They, sent me to PR training, like they did all this investment in me. And it was like, fantastic. And I remember the first one, I was like, so, so nervous. And I was just talking about my product. Like it like, there should be zero, you know, anxiety in this thing. And the second one, I was still nervous. And then the third one, I, you know, it wasn't like I, you know, had some type of trick, imagine the audience naked or anything silly, but I just was in a hotel and I was like, hold on here. I just like, 
need to treat this as everything else I do. When I first learn how to code in a new language, I'm not like, oh my goodness, I can't write the best software today. I have to treat it like I'm learning a language, right? And I'm like, all right, what's the verbs? What's the nouns? I have to piece all this together. And once I started treating those activities like that, um, I would get past that anxiety. And then there would be another one. I was like, oh my goodness, I didn't know there's this other thing to learn. And now it's almost like I get a dopamine rush on learning a new thing. And I think if folks can find their version of tackling that, um, a lot of our anxieties and fears can be tackled. Yeah, I love that. It's so true. And it's such good advice. The being Learning to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, I think is one of the biggest things. And being entrepreneurs, a lot of uncomfortable, a lot of learning, a lot, you know, you're stepping so many into, things going wrong. <laughs> yeah, failures and learnings and mistakes. And, you know, the the roller coaster that goes up and down. And eventually, over time, we know the roller coaster slows down and evens out a little bit. It's a little less wavy and crazy. Um, but you do have to hang on, hang on for the ride and, and just keep stretching. I think that's 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 really it. When we just keep stretching, it's going to be uncomfortable, but it means you're growing. It means something new is coming. It means, you know, that exponential curve is closer and closer. So 100%. yeah, really appreciate all your incredibly in-depth advice today. And I hope um, the entrepreneurs listening got some of that and uh, we'll continue on, continuing on being great entrepreneurs, being resilient and, um, and all growing together. So thank you, LaShawn. Um, we will leave your information in the show notes um, so people can can look you up and check out your website. Love your website. It's really great um, inspiration, both your personal one and your business one. If you don't mind just sharing your personal one, I think it's really fun and sure. a great way of, of how you really share your values and who you are in a really authentic, genuine way, um, which is why we invited you on this podcast. And I've enjoyed this conversation so much. So you thank you. Yeah, thank you for the time. We really appreciate it. And thank you for tuning in to Resilient Entrepreneurs.